Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Blog Talk Radio. Tonight we'll go back in time to seasons past, when 22 men graced the rugged fields of yesterday, fighting for one more first down, one more yard gain, one final score, which would bring victory after 60 minutes of battle on the gridiron. Tonight, we'll explore the world of gridiron greats. Welcome to Gridiron Greats Football History and its memorabilia on the Gridiron Greats Publishing and Broadcasting Network. In conjunction with Swick Enterprises, and we're live from the Wallingford, Connecticut home of Gridiron Greats Magazine. I'm Bob Swick, publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and I'll be your host for the show. Gridiron Greats is the only publication in America which focuses upon the history and memorabilia of the North American football game since its inception in 1869. We'll cover 150-plus years of football history and memorabilia. Now you can find us on the web at GridironGreatsMagazine.com. At this time, I'd like to introduce my co-host. He's a senior contributing writer to Gridiron Greats Magazine, a football memorabilia historian specializing in pre-World War II items, in particular Red Grange, and also Seattle Seahawks items, in particular Steve Larch. Yeah. He hails from Portland, Oregon, Mr. Joe Squires. Joe! Welcome to the show this evening. Ah, Captain, so good to be here as usual. It's good to be back on, back with another show here in the lazy, crazy days of summer. And what's better during the summer than auctions of unopened material? And I'm going to hand it off to you, Joe. Oh, just some really good auctions coming up, like you and I were talking about pre-show. Um, and one of the ones that you and I were bantering back and forth was Heritage. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what Heritage deal is, but they constantly have, like, uh, you know, really good auctions that end, like, every couple weeks. But Heritage had uh, on Sunday a, uh, a large auction end, uh, a, a salvo. I call them, they come in waves, so it's a wave, because one wave ended on Sunday, another wave ends in five days, and another wave about ten days after that. So it's kind of fascinating. Uh, but they had a wave end and just a, uh, a, a an abundance of unopened um, wax packs, cello packs, uh, you know, rack packs, etc. And uh, from all vintage years. But the the interesting thing about it is the salvo that closed on Sunday was all GAI packs. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. Uh, the salvo that ends this Sunday is mostly PSA packs. So I was just now, why did, interesting. What, why, did it, why do you think they separated it? I don't if, know. If there's uh, a, who knows? I mean, and you and I, you and I have talked about this on the show before. Uh, at a national, I gave you, uh, you know, it's you know, well-known in the show, one of the first sets you opened was 65 Tops and 65 Philly. So at a national once, yep. I gave you yep. a GAI 65 Philly pack to open. And you found? Yep. I found cards that were 
uh, touched. I found cards that no way possible they would be in a pack like that. I found, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it was a resealed pack. That's, yeah. Yep. It was yeah. And, and there was the not even a, uh, yeah. yeah, there wasn't even a correct uh, insert in the pack. So I'm saying yeah. to myself, what the heck is this? And unfortunately, yep. it was a GAI graded uh, pack. And I don't trust them, to be honest with you. Yep. And, and ever since that day, I mean, in GAI, obviously, you know, went away and stopped grading packs. Uh, so now PSA, PSA, Steve Hart, previous guest of the show, Steve Hart, BBCE, was, is the, you know, like it or not, the preeminent yep. uh, expert on packs. Uh, he's pretty well-renowned, and I, I trust his judgment. Uh, but it, it's, it is kind of interesting, the auction coming up is mostly PSA. Uh, yep. You've got uh, – and so here's the fascinating one. Uh, there was a PS, 1958 Topps Cello GAI 7.5 that sold for $3,100. That includes the VIG. So it was $2,600 plus the VIG. A Cello pack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 1958 Topps. Uh, mm-hmm. I just I, – in, in a recent auction, I bought a raw – uh, ungraded 58 tops complete set, including a really nice Jim Brown. It had a little bit of a sticker mm-hmm. on the back, but uh, I was able to take that off. I bought it for about 1200 bucks. So somebody paid three times for a cello pack, what I did for the entire set with a Jim Brown in it. Uh, so is, $3,200 is for a cello pack. I beg your pardon? Is, that's, that's amazing. I mean, really, you know, putting it in perspective the way you just did, I think that's, that speaks volumes, you know, you're going to pay $3,100 for a pack of, sell a pack of how many cards compared to $1,200 for getting the complete set. Truly amazing. Yep. Truly amazing. Uh, well, that, so, I mean, obviously people, it's nostalgic if you, you know, for, for you probably opening a 65 tops pack or a 65 Philly pack would be more nostalgic than me handing you a, you know, completed set or a stack of cards. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. Ushers you back to your childhood. Uh, A young mustachioed, you know, Bob Swick opening up 65 (laughs) tops, wax packs. When I think about you uh, as a kid opening football, I always imagine you with a a mustache, of course. At that (laughs) national, Brenda had to console me because I was very upset going back to the room. Because she said, did you really open those packs? I said, yeah. I said, that's one of the first packs I ever opened in my life, 1965. I opened a yeah. Philly pack first, and then I opened the Taps pack second. I still remember. And, uh, you know, it, it's just sad because, you know, sad, and it's raw. You know, that, you know, how can you grade something and be that off on, uh, off on it, knowing that it's a resealed yeah. pack? That's ridiculous. It's utterly ridiculous. <laughs> I think you just answered the age-old question, why did GAI pack grading go away? <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh-huh. exactly. So, you know, that's, in, that's, uh, that's, in 12 days oh. – go ahead, Bob. Go ahead. No, I was just uh, going to say, I mean, uh, you know, there, there's a, there is a strong reason why they went out of business. I mean, it's a classic reason, you know. Yeah. What were they grading? Who knows, you know? Who knows? Who knows what they're looking at? I mean, uh, yeah, but – uh, in 12 days, a 58 tops cello graded PSA 6 is for sale. So it'll be interesting to, to see if, uh, you know, PSA 7.5, PSA 6 on cello is virtually the same. What'll be interesting to see is if uh, a PSA graded cello sells for more or less than a GAI 58 tops cello. Pretty interesting. My, but, my gut feeling, it'll, it'll sell for a lot more. It'll sell for a lot more. It's, uh, yeah, you know, GAI, GAI is GAI. A cello is tough to reseal, though, as compared to a wax mm-hmm. pack, obviously. Yeah. But uh, I, yeah. I can almost guarantee whoever got that whoever got that 58 cello pack is probably going to break it and send it to PSA and get whatever they can get out of it and, uh, yeah. and you know, yeah. try to make money so. one, one way or the other. So, so in, in five days, there's a 58 top cello PSA 7 that sells, and in 12 days, there's a PSA uh, PSA six fifty eight top cello that sells. So it'll it, we get we get two bites of the apple here to see, but just an impressive wow. you know uh, thing of unopened. Uh, 
including uh, one thing one thing that I was hoping I'd be able to get that had to, I had to slip and let go. Uh, it was a 22 uh, rack packs from 1979 Topps football, and each rack pack contains contains three rack uh, three wax packs. So 22 yep. rack packs yep. equals 66 packs, and it sold for 1850, yep. which is 2200 uh, with the vig. So 2200 divided by 66 is about $35 a pack for 79 tops football. Wow. Obviously, wow. The, the chase card in that is the Steve Largent card where he's running down the field, full view, turning slightly into the, yep. uh, into the camera. Uh, just, yeah. Yep. Good, yep. good picture. I think it's, but, yeah. So, uh, and then in uh, 12 days, another 22 rack pack of 79 tops comes up. So a lot of dupes that they did a really good job of, you know, not, not putting in the same auction, but, you know, staggering out. And uh, Jeff Payne told me yeah, that, uh, that any anytime I mention a card in, in the show, it means I'm after it and I will end up getting it. So also worth mentioning a 1933 Sports King Jim Thorpe PSA 9, currently going for 35000 <laughs> Not Not really wow. my price range, but I thought I'd mention it wow. just to see if that stroke block continues my way. So. Wow! Wow! Unbelievable! Truly unbelievable! Yeah, so. You know, I look, I look I'll, back, I, I look back, and I've sold off virtually all my older wax that I had, and basically, I had wax packs from roughly '74 up. Um, obviously, I had a few wax boxes here and there. I had complete wax boxes of '82, uh, '83, '84 through '88. I had packs wax packs from 74 up i'm going through my notes right now and uh, over the uh, years over the course of years and course of several nationals and local shows here i sold i sold it all because a i i didn't want to collect it anymore i enjoyed collecting the wrapper run until i sold it but i always thought the uh the wax would hold some value to it and again i go back to the what i call the uh five dollar box with the black line through it Tops would return, yeah. uh, uh, dealers would return, and, you know, stores, five and ten stores would return their wax boxes to Tops. Tops would put a big black market through it, and uh, then they would resell them for $5 a box. So uh, a lot of different yep. larger dealers over the years would buy it up and or it would make its way through the market. And it was just it's truly amazing to see how that market developed over the years and how, you know, there's such a great demand for wax packs, rack packs, so on and so forth. And again, I could see it because how many, how many of those packs are still around, so on and so forth, supply and demand. Uh, I still remember at one of the nationals, I broke open a 76 taps pack that I had and it was all commons. It was just completely all commons, not one star card in it. And I vaguely remember then, uh, opening up some of these six wax, and I I don't have any recollection. And I went through my notes again. I did not remember ever pulling a painting out of a out of a wax pack. And it was years later I finished that Sunday. I, I finished the Sunday six set like in the early '80s, and the painting card obviously was very reasonable at the time. But I I don't ever remember pulling a, a painting out. So uh, interesting to say the least. Mm. But, uh, yeah, you know, again, wax well, packs pointed out, you, you, you think about how much wax is worth. Somebody pointed out that an 89 score, uh, you know, wax box was $1,000 yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. uh, yeah. I mean and that, and and it's a beautiful not, set. But it's, it's the a beautiful wax set. Really There's a lot of star power in there, a lot of rookie cards. So it got yeah. me wondering because I sold off most of my wax, most of my unopened. You know, after we had a couple guests on, a couple unopened experts on, and went down. But I still have quite a few, and most of the ones I saved were some BBC sealed ones. BBC sealed ones. Mm-hmm. I went and I rummaged. I'm like, hey, I have an eight. I have a, a BBC sealed '89 score wax box. I'm like, that's pretty cool. So I kept kind of rummaging. You know, I've got an '82 tops and '83 tops, uh, a couple '87, a couple '88, and then I found mm-hmm. uh, in like 2008 to 2009 they came out with a bunch of throwback uh, sets. One of them was the Mayo. Uh, yeah. So yeah. They, they, in 2008, 2009, they did a Mayo throwback set, which was really cool. And the same year, they did a 35 Chickle throwback set. 
uh, <laughs> uh, you know, for modern players. And it was, uh, and I remember buying uh, three boxes of them. I opened one. Uh, I opened one and put the other two away. So I found those two boxes. So uh, I don't, I don't know how many people put those sets together, but I, I've got some unopened. If anyone wants. <laughs> and you heard it first. Yeah, give us a call. <laughs> so. And speaking of uh, that, real quick, sports game, Thorpe. I mean, it just it goes to show you, just PSA nine. I mean, I don't know what the population of that is, but it's uh, you know, thirty six thousand dollars right now plus the buyer's premiums. So you're you're talking yeah. about forty three thousand dollars card, uh, and just goes to show you, just you know, still the you know the registry is a hell of a drug. Truly, you know. truly unbelievable. Truly unbelievable. You know, the one thing I see here locally, there, there was a couple. Uh, I, I was helping a, an older deal, uh, an older collector with his collection, with the family, uh, getting rid of stuff, so on and so forth. And I was always, and I was just shocked. They had like a big uh, storage bin, uh, not storage bin, one of those like plastic container bins that you can store stuff in. And he had it filled to capacity with wax. But it was ninety ninety one score football, ninety ninety one tops football, and a bunch of ninety pro set. It wasn't even ninety one pro set series one that has the Belichick in it. So uh, I said, "You're lucky you're going to get five dollars a box for each one of these." And that's per- that. They basically proceeded to sell to a local dealer here for five dollars a box, which he was generous with because I, I really don't see how he's going to make more than. You know, six dollars a box. You know, selling them, making a buck a box type of thing. So uh, very yeah. interesting. Very interesting yeah. to say the least. But, Somebody uh, needs to do an is, article in Gridiron Greats about uh, the stock market versus unopened wax, and just if you would have <laughs> invested in wax at any given oh, year, yeah. what's the value of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's just mind-boggling, truly mind-boggling. To to, to basically. Just thinking about how many wax packs and how many wax boxes over the years passed through my hands, and uh, it's just it's just incredible. I mean, I, I can I can remember it distinctly. Nineteen eighty six tops football from a candy wholesaler was ten dollars and eighty cents a box. That's what you paid them, and then you put it out for fifty cents a pack, so you made you know seven bucks a box type of thing. And then some dealers would hit you up. And you sell the box for fifteen. You knew you made four bucks on it, type of thing. That's the kind of profit margin that was being looked at back then. You know what I mean? Today, uh, to me, it's just you know hundreds of thousands of dollars more than it ever was yep. 25, 30, 30 years ago. It's incredible. Truly incredible to, to think about. It's amazing. All right, our special guest is here, and I'd like to move on in the show and introduce him. Our special guest tonight is Timothy P. Brown, who's the author of How Football Became Football and Fields of Friendly Strife. Tim combines years of research experience and the insight of a former college football coach to eliminate football's past and its relevance to the Martin game. He was a guest on our show a couple years back, and I'd like to reintroduce Tim Brown to the show tonight. Tim, thanks for being on. Hey guys, uh, happy to be back. Had a had a blast the last time, so hopefully you do the same again tonight. <laughs> Fingers yeah. crossed, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give the book an immediate plug. Um, I'm doing a review in the newest issue of Gridiron Greats, which is going to be out at the end of the month. Uh, you wrote a brand new book, which was called How Football Became Football. 150 Years of the Game's Evolution. And I'm going to lead off our questions tonight by asking you, how did you come up with the idea to write this book? Yeah, so um, I assume all of your readers remember everything I said the last time that I was on your show. <laughs> and so, but it, it really it really starts there. You know, I wrote, I wrote the first book that I wrote, Concern the World War One Rose Bowls that were played by military uh, teams, and in in describing what happened in their games and just the nature of football at the time, part of what I had to do is 
I had to understand what the game was like back then and just found that there were a lot of things that the nature of football at, during the time of World War One is quite different than it is today. So yeah. I just had to become familiar with it enough to describe it to the, the reading audience. So things like there were a lot of, still a lot of restrictions on the forward pass. The game still had this process called pumped outs. There were lots of strange techniques for holding, uh, you know, field goals and extra points. And then, you know, the offenses were like traditional tees, single wings and Notre Dame box. So in any event, um, as I, in writing that book, I enjoyed finding out about those things. And then some of the feedback I got from readers was that, that they enjoyed that part of it too. Maybe not the rest of it, but they enjoyed that part of it. And so, um, so it just became, uh, you know, it was the thing where I just, I saw that there was an opportunity to write another, another book really about the broader history of the game and, and not, you know, not, you know, some histories of football, I think it's just plain boring. I, I, I was trying to, to tell how the game evolved in terms of just some of the nuts and bolts uh, of the game itself, but also fan behavior, stadiums, you know, the equipment, all those kinds of things. So it just seemed to seem like a fun topic to pursue. Hmm. If, if the way you broke it down and for the re, for listening audience who hasn't read the book, I, I truly recommend it because it is so informative and I really enjoyed the way you broke down the book section, um, the, the three basic sections of the history of the game. And for football, and just to try to relate it to football cards and memorabilia, I've always said there were three eras of football cards. Uh, there was the pre-World War II era, and then you had the 1946 to 1988 era, and then you had the Martin Day era, which is 1989 up which is just a total proliferation of, of hundreds of thousands of cards coming out into the market. So the way you, brought the, you broke the book down as far as uh, section by section was, to me, probably one of the most informative aspects of the book. And I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you to, to touch upon the three errors, if you can, for our audience. Sure. Um, yeah. So as I was going as I was gathering information uh, you know I just recognized it somehow I had to find a way to discuss football topically but also follow some kind of chronology because it changed so much over the years so what I did was I, I basically broke football into three eras so from its beginning until 1905 1906 mm-hmm. until 1959 and then 59 forward and you know, the 1905 break was real straightforward. The 1961, uh, you know, you can argue five years either way. Uh, but, you know, I laid out in the book why I made that decision. And then within each of those eras, I basically followed a, a pattern of the first chapter, the same six-chapter sequence in each era. So there's kind of setting the ground, for, uh, or setting the stage for what's happening. Then there's a chapter on, uh, the field, the ball, and stadiums, so kind of the physical aspect of the game, the physical environment, the, the third chapter on play and techniques, a fourth on player equipment and uniforms, a fifth looking at the role of coaches and officials, and then the sixth uh-huh. looked more at what happened off the field, so bands and cheerleaders and fan behavior, but also the broader structure, you know, the NCAA, the various professional leagues, so how the game was organized, you know, beyond into, well, starting with conferences, but then the broader NCAA organization, you know, et cetera. So that's, that's the general structure of the book. And, you know, I think, I think it worked and I, you know, I'm glad it worked too. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, to be, to me, it was just uh, an amazing breakdown and it was so logical the way you broke it down. And, you know, I really never, I've read, I don't know, thousands of football books in my lifetime. And reading any history of a game is always difficult to write for the simple reason. How do you begin with it and how do you end it at the same time? So the Martin era, I think we're all pretty well versed one way or the other. You know, we've lived it, we see it. We, you know, there, you had a lot of very interesting tidbits. But the first section, the actual history of the game was just, was just uh, 
incredible to, to read. I mean, you're really reading, you really wrote the history of what happened uh, in that first section. So I, I definitely got to compliment you on that because uh, you, you basically put it in uh, an understandable terms, even for someone who's not a football fan or doesn't collect football would understand what was going on in that era. So that, I, I really give you credit for, for writing it that way. Yeah, thanks. One of my primary editors was my daughter. <laughs> She's never played the game. Uh, but, you know, so, again, she, it, some of it had to make sense for her. Yeah, so that, that, that was a good, uh, a good audience test. My, my wife has a journalism degree from University of Oregon. Whenever I ask her to edit my articles I write, she puts too much red ink on them, so I stopped asking her a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> Uh, first of all, I was, check, I was checking this book out, Tim. Very handsome profile picture on the back side of the book. Good-looking man. So, yeah. But, but uh, I was born the, with the description it was a gift. <laughs> the description of it is what caught me. I printed it out because I, I thought it was a, a nod to quite a few things. Just uh, richly illustrated, written in a fun, engaging manner. Readers learn why Mullins hunt outs and quarterback kicks disappeared from the game. I had to look two of those up and I consider mine a pretty, myself a pretty good fan. Uh, as well as how helmets, end zones, hash marks, penalty flags became part of the football. Uh, Walter Camp, Paul Brown, Sid Gilman received their due while revealing the roles played by Frank Bursch, John Lochnery, and other less known men who impacted the game. Uh, uh, a thoroughly researched and humorous look at how football became the game we know and love today. I thought that was such a well-written uh, you know, intro to the book. Uh, it, it, something like that is, you know, something that I'd throw on a, you know, a word doc and then, you know, add and alter, you know, every other day for months. So, I mean, uh, how long is it, how long does it take you to research and write a book, something like this? I mean, it's just, I, I know my writing style. I'm always curious of other people's. Yeah. Well, so it basically took me about, 26 months. Most of that was really full time, uh, you know, spent on the book. Um, I was working off and on during that period, but, um, you know, basically, you know, I, I finished the first book, set up a website and did some publicity work on that. And then kind of went right into this and into the second, you know, into how football became football. So, um, I just kind of pounded at it, uh, for a long time and, and, and uh, the hardest thing was really knowing when to stop. And, you know, it, it just, it's, it's one of those things where, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was just how, how, far, how far do I go? How, you know, how much more yeah. do I need to find out and confirm? Yeah. I've done that too, where I'm like, I'm digging too deep, uh, you know, et cetera. But I looked up this book. Uh, you know, I looked up some of the details on Amazon as well. It's 434 pages. 1.6 pounds. So at 26 months, <laughs> at 780 days, and at 434 pages, you're averaging 0.56 pages per day. Does that seem about right? Yeah. Well, some of them I probably wrote five or six times, but um, yeah. And it, at one point, it, you know, it was you know, substantially longer. And then I just edited down. I just, uh, you know, when you start writing these things, you get too focused on things or yeah. that you know this minutia that. Um, that you find interesting, but you just have to get rid of. And so I, I did have an editorial uh, review by a professional editor. And like he did with the first book, he said, you got to get rid of some of this stuff. So, you know, so you chop, and I probably chopped about 20% out of it. Okay. Wow. So 20% would be, it would have weighed in at about two pounds if you hadn't. <laughs> <your editor. laughs> uh, just um, good. Uh, Bob had mentioned, you know, the pictures in there, and I just uh, none of the reviews that I was able to read had pictures. So I'm, I'm very curious to, you know, to or I, I, uh, you know, I look forward to buying a copy and checking out the pictures because the front picture, uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah, just good looking book. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, well, that's uh, that. That yeah, I hired a, a book a cover designer, so. Kudos to him. Now, while Joe brought up the, the pictures, um, again, going a little off script, 
that was a uh, incredible task to obtain pictures, especially the early ones that are, that are in the first two halves, the first two sections aired of the uh, of the book. Give us a little background of what you had to do to obtain them, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so the the book has 203 illustrations or images, and probably, you know, I'm guessing 170 of those are, are pictures, you know, images rather than right. illustrations. Um, and so basically the, the task was, uh, especially for the early days, a lot of times I can explain and explain and write and write, and it's still hard to visualize what you're talking about. Um, right. So right. I, wherever I could, I tried to find images that could at least provide a sense of what the game was like and how things worked. So, you know, just as a real simple example, there's an image in there that shows how centers uh, snap the ball. That, well, there's several images like that. And so initially they, they snapped the ball with their feet, you know, because it was a game. It was rugby. It wasn't football yet. It was rugby. And so just like in the rugby scrum, they're kicking the ball back with their, their feet. That's what they were doing uh, in football. And then they finally started snapping with their hands. Uh, but even then, it was, they were rolling the ball to the quarterback on the, on the, ball, on the ball side, not you know, they weren't snapping it nose to nose. They were rolling it along the ground on the side. So anyways, I was able to find images or in some cases, you know, ink drawings that were very common in newspapers back then and to provide those as illustrations. So most of those, most of those images I either found in old, uh, you know, period books and magazines that are mm -hmm. out of copyright so I could, use them without, you know, penalty oh, or having to pay for anything. And then in, in many, many cases, uh, and I cite them all in the book, uh, uh, a lot of the universities that were playing back then, so, you know, the Harvards and Yales and uh, Princetons and those kinds of folks, uh, Michigan, yeah, I yeah. You know, sourced a number of photos from them. Um, so by and large, uh, it's university archives. Um, in the case of the equipment, um, I got a fair number of the images from, from old sporting good catalogs that I bought. And then, you know, beyond that, I've, um, I purchased a fair number of, uh, the RPPCs, the real photo postcards, yeah, uh, that yeah. were just, that, you know, that became common around the turn of the century. And so, you know, for turn of the century forward, I was able to illustrate some of the concepts using those. Yeah. The RP, um, the the um the real RPPCs yeah are um very to me historical and I think they're to a certain degree they're still overlooked in the hobby for whatever reason and I think a lot of it is it's difficult when you buy a postcard and you have no way of uh, identifying the player or the teams on the postcards, a lot of, I know for a fact, a lot of collectors just don't like it because of that. To me, it was always interesting picking up a, uh, a postcard and, you know, trying to trace it, trying to find it, see, try to see if I can match that player's face or the school, so on and so forth. So um, that to me really added a lot in that section at the same time. So that was, that was really nice to see. And uh, for, for a person who enjoys memorabilia and anybody who does like memorabilia the book to me uh, does a phenomenal job with your photos that you use to to illustrate a lot of your points and what you're writing about so that was very very interesting and uh, correct uh, actually pull me in what's the year of the um, that the copyright stops for items yeah. I forgot what it was off the top of my head. yeah so it's it's basically um, Right now, items that were from 19 – I can't remember right now if it's 1923 or 1924 this year. And then, then it marches forward one – you know, when the calendar turns, it marches forward a year. So okay. it's, uh, it's right, yeah. in, right in that time frame. Okay. And that, that's a big help for a lot of individuals who, who are uh, 
writing about older older materials, uh, older subjects, so on and so forth, especially in sports. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. a lot yeah. of those pictures are, you know, beyond rare type of type of situation. Now, while you were writing this book, do you have any interesting stories that uh, you could share with our audience uh, in your uh, expedition of the book itself? Yeah, so I, I think one of my favorite stories, uh, you and and it was uh, Joe mentioned it, um, you know, reading the like the little synopsis at the back of the on the back cover of the book. He mentioned a guy named John Lockney, and so nobody knows who John Lockney is, but <laughs> he is he had a greater impact on the way the foot. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, when you think about the lines on a football field, all the individual lines, he is responsible for, I think it's 78% of them. And, and specifically what he's responsible for is you think about, you know, you've got sidelines, the yard lines, the end line, the goal line, and then we've got hash marks that came into the game in 1932. But the hash mm-hmm. marks are just the lines that, that intersect and are perpendicular to the yard lines. But football fields now also have all those little one-yard line stripes that run parallel to the yard lines, you know, and they're right. like at the 21, the 22, da-da-da-da. So Lockney is a guy who was just a normal fan, um, a guy living in Wisconsin. He, had, he always got frustrated that the referees often didn't spot the ball correctly and back before his lines came into the game, they had to, they were always pulling the chains out to measure. Um, and so he had the idea of adding these other lines onto the field. So, all, again, all those lines that are in the hash mark area and then along the sidelines, those are, those are lock me lines. Now, nobody calls them that. There was really no name for them. I'm actually trying to get a process going to get people to start calling them lock me lines. But huh. so all those individual lines. He was just a normal fan who got his local high school to add them and people liked them. He then got the university of Wisconsin to add them. And, um, and they, it just so happened they added them before a nationally televised game with rice. And they had all kinds of people writing in and saying, Hey, these things are great. Why don't I, why doesn't everybody put those lines on the field? Cause it, it just made it clear you know, the forward progress and all those kinds of things. And really within, I think it was 16 months of his idea to add these lines, the NCAA required them on football fields moving forward. So, you know, it's just a great story of just an average guy adding, adding to the game. Um, Now, go ahead. Go ahead. Wasn't even a coach, just a fan who said, let's do this. Yep, yep. And then for Joe, well, just for Joe, I was going to add in one of the other things I just love. There's a lot of things that, you know, you've seen through your whole life, and you just, you never knew what they were. You never knew what you called them. But everybody knows the the Red Grange photo. I think it was, you know, 1925 photo of him wearing a jersey when he first, you know, joined the Bears. And it was one of those jerseys that had those silly-looking stripes running vertically on yeah. his jersey, mm-hmm. right? And so those are called friction strips. Sometimes people call them stick'em cloth, but they were yeah. typically moleskin or sometimes canvas. But they were intended to for the runner or the ball carrier to. It, it was supposed to help him hold the ball better and retain, you know, yeah. so it does, didn't slip out of his jersey. Um, now, you know, I had gone 60 years before I knew what a, that they were called friction strips. I'd always seen friction them, strips. Was, you know, but didn't know we what they were called. We learned it about a year ago. We learned it about a year ago. We had a guest on uh, who's in Seattle who makes jerseys, yep. authentic period yep. jerseys. Yep. Yep. He, he mentioned finding that friction tape was the hardest part. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And what, what, what's interesting to me when when you wrote about that in the book, and again, uh, Joe's referring to Ebbets Field, the, we had the owner and uh, creator of the uh-huh. on. Yeah, and, yeah. and I said to myself, 
in football as years went on, and I know it was very common in the 60s, 50s and 60s, a lot of players would use um, a, uh, like almost like a uh, tack or a, I don't know what word I'm trying to use, like a tack yeah, or a grease for their hands. And, uh, yeah, stick them yeah. like, and so they could hold the ball, especially the running backs. And the um, they would tape up their, you know, their, their wrist or whatever and just try to touch it before the play, so when they got, uh, you know, uh, the handoff, they could hold the ball better. But then after a while, the center had to make sure he didn't get uh, the ball stuck while he was snapping it to the quarterback. So he had to make sure wherever it was touched, he would have to roll that ball over or, you know, make it so that uh, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't stick type of thing. But that was very interesting. And, and, and uh, again, we didn't realize until about a year ago when he was on the show, I had never heard of that up until that point. So uh, that, that's very interesting to to know and to learn yeah. about at the same time. Yeah, but uh, you've Truly. seen those things forever, right? You just didn't well, know. You know if, you, if you look at team photos, only the backs have friction tape because I always thought it was part of the uniform. But then you look at the other players and you realize only the backs, only the people who are you know carrying the ball have the friction tape. Uh, it starts to make a little more sense. Yeah, but um, it, it, yeah. Oh, uh, go ahead. No, I, I was just gonna say, you know, I, I think that that was the case initially, but then a lot of them, you know, pretty much everybody had them, and they got all. I've got a picture in there of. Uh, I'm almost positive it's Furman. You know that instead of having stripes, they had it looks like you know a, a target, you know, an archery target, <laughs> you know, in their that's what they had on the front of their jerseys. So, you know, people had all kinds of different, you know, shapes and, uh, you know, it became as much a style issue as it was, you know, the functional value. Yeah. It, I, it, it's funny. I, I, I'm not a very good writer. It, it's, it's, I mean, I have a particular format I have to stick to. So I always am impressed and just tip my hat to people who can sit down and crank out, you know, such an amazing book like this, 430, 1.6 pounds of stuff. Like I said, it's, it's incredible. But what's, what's the difference between how you're, you're like, you know, your writing style from your first book, Fields of Friendly Strife, and this book? I mean, is, it was a different approach, just a different layout. I mean, yeah, what, what's different? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know that the writing style itself was that different. I mean, I, I, I think I was a better writer in the second one. Uh, you know, it was just, I edited a lot more and I think it's tighter. I think the research is what was different. You know, in the first book, yeah. it was kind of, um, you know, the the primary task I had in the first book was that I was trying to profile, profile these military teams. And unlike universities where they kept, the universities kept playing, and so they kept a record of who was on the teams back in the in the old days. The military training camps of World War One, half of them disappeared. You know, so there there wasn't a an ongoing archive or a group of people who were documenting who these people were. So, so the task there was much more about trying to identify who who some of the players were and where they came from and what happened to them after the after the war. And so that was, uh, it was kind of like once I had, once I did that, okay, then, then the research was over, you know, whereas with this one, a lot of what I was trying to do is to, to try to identify when was the first time that certain things came into the game. And, and, you know, you can always argue that, okay, well, this was an earlier influence and this was an earlier influence. And so it's kind of, you know, how far do you go with that? Um, the other challenge here was that, so if you did a newspaper, if you, I, I relied a lot on newspaper archives, online databases, newspaper archives. And so if you wanted to figure out, okay, well, when did blocking sleds come into the game? If you, if you search <laughs> blocking sled, if Who you search for that? blocking yeah, sled. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. It's, you know, well, well, you'll find it, the newspaper first mentioned blocking sleds in the 1920s. But if you go all the way back to 1890, they had these things called charging machines. And they mm-hmm. were the same, you know, basically the same thing as blocking sleds. They were just calling them something different. So 
you know, that was one of the difficulties here. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's places where I think I found the first instance, but there's probably somebody before, before what I identified. And hopefully, you know, somebody comes up and can identify those things. But so just the, you know, the terminology changed so much over the years. And um, I deliberately put the, the original rules that the uh, Intercollegiate Football Association laid down in 1878. I put those rules in the appendix of the book just so people can read that and try to understand what the heck are they talking about? Because the language is very different. The terminology is very different. And it was, you know, a bunch of times I had to find source after source in order to even figure out what they meant, <laughs> you know, because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's not documented anymore. Like, you know, I mentioned pump outs earlier. You know, nobody knows what those are anymore. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I just had to go back to period sources and try to figure out best I could what that meant and what it was about. Exactly. Unbelievable. Uh, Tim, do you collect any um, football memorabilia? Yeah, so my my primary collection is uh, Rose Bowl tickets and then the ribbons that were worn by officials, ushers, you know, people working at, inside the stadium. Uh, and the problem is, I, I mean, I suspect that I suspect I've got one of the the best collections of Rose Bowl tickets around. Um, But I just can't find anymore, you know, or I can't afford the ones that I can find. And so uh, I started with, in writing my first book, I started doing a little bit more collecting of of military team um, ephemera, Uh, you know, mostly images, but programs and things like that. And then, in large part, uh, you know, due to this, due to how football became football, most of what I, I'm acquiring, you know, probably over the past two years has been images, and the vast majority of those are are RPPCs. So, I, you know, and I, most of what, even among those, most of what I'm trying to find are, it's not necessarily hey, here's the 1908 Missouri team, it's I want to get it. I want to find an image of the Missouri team playing on the field, an action shot, and where it kind of shows something about the game. So it's more about the concept or what's happening in the game or, you know, what the stadium looked like at the time rather than necessarily a particular team or particular players. It's more the, you know, images that illustrate a football concept. Now that may seem kind of bizarre, but that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Huh. That, the photo on the front cover of Jim Thorpe, I, I don't think I've seen that image before. Where did you find that one? Uh, Library of Congress. So, uh, and actually, i got to give credit to the, um, the cover designer, a guy named Stuart Williams, who does really great work. Um, I went to him with a different image, and he said, yeah, it's not going to work. But the funny thing is that the image, the image I gave to him was taken the same day at the same place, the same game, by the same photographers as the Jim Thorpe image that he used. So photographer's, oh, wow. photographer's name, Harrison Ewing. Yeah, and so, and, you know, his image is ten times better than the one that I gave him, you know, because uh, yeah. number one is Jim Thorpe. So it's just so, you know, so perfect. And it's just a beautiful image. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful image. Yeah. I love it. So uh, obviously that one's past, you know, uh, you know, where it's, uh, you know, what, what do you call it? Uh, Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, So, you know, uh, library of Congress, I mean, if, if somebody wants to spend a, you know, waste a couple hours some evening, you know, go, go out to, you know, get on the web and Library of Congress um, and just, you know, search for images and, you know, just put in the word football and you'll get, you know, page after page after page. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you know, University of Michigan has a Bentley library that similarly just, you know, page after page of images, just wonderful resources. 
So, so second second book, Tim. Imagine you're going to take a little time off, uh, dust yourself off, take a breather, and then start thinking about that third book. I wanted to plant an idea about a young receiver out of Oklahoma, played for the Seattle Seahawks, <laughs> wore number 80. I think your fans, I think nay, I think the public deserves a deep down dive on Steve Largent. <laughs> what do you think? What was his name again? Oh. <laughs> So much for being the writer on the third time. <laughs> well, shout out, shout I tell out, you what, it's much problem. That's probably in all the years we've been doing the show was the best Largent hit that you did ever. <laughs> that, that was phenomenal. So I would say far more likely that I write about Red Grange, but I know you know there's been other books written about him, so. Um, you know, it's just like, to me, by the time they start putting face masks on, it's just not as fun. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know, you know, right now, I don't know that I have a, have a, a third book in the offing. Um, you know, it just, it takes so much time and, you know, really requires a, a passion and, um, you know, if I was betting, I would think that, uh, you know, maybe putting something together to, that is a little bit less text and more just images. So just uh, images of football past and, you know, trying to, uh, you know, a lot of these RPPCs were just taken, you know, just average stuff, high schools, you know, just local commercial photographers and yearbook photographers, you know, that's who produced a lot of those. And, uh-huh. you know, most of them are just hidden or they're, they're lost. Uh, so to the extent that I can find some of them and resurface them, resurface them and make them available, uh, that's great. Um, you know, some of them are on my website too, right? You know, now. But um, anyways, you know, just books can be more accessible in many ways than than the web. So yeah. I think that would be very well re- very well received to say the least if you if you came up with something like that. I know a lot of collectors would love to to see that. All right, Tim, we're, we're, almost, we're wrapping up the show. We're almost out of time. Any final thoughts and or advice for collectors or writers? And can you give us information on how we can purchase your book? Yeah, so, you know, I think um, I'm not going to provide any advice to writers because they're my competition. So they're on their own. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... You know, to collectors, I think you know, I kind of have to break them into two two groups. So, you know, the people who collect primarily collect cards and other items that were kind of designed to be collected, right, uh, or produced to be collected. Um, you know, I think I think the how football became football can be helpful to them more, but more like to the general fan, just in terms of. You know, if you spend as much time and money on collecting football cards and, and related items as many of your, as both of you and many of your listeners do, then the book really is just a way to help you get a better handle on the game. Just understand how it got to where it is today. Because uh, it, it right. has been, it's been a long and torturous, you know, path. Um, to people who are, I guess, are maybe a little bit more, like me who collect, and I'm using the term very broadly, but, you know, ephemera, images, programs, equipment, those kinds of items. I think there's enough stuff in this book that, um, that can really help people date items. So, you know, to be able to look at an item and say, number one, identify that it is football related because some things that, you know, the old nose guards, most people would have no idea what those are. Um, And I don't mean, nose guards the position, you know, the defensive tackle type. Uh, right, right, folks. right. Um, so to be able to identify date and then have a sense of how those different, you know, pieces of equipment, et cetera, were used. Um, and, the, you know, but so I think that those kinds of collectors, I think, uh, would would benefit, you know, I think to be smarter collectors, you know, if, if, uh, if they read the book. 
And I just, you know, I guarantee you that I don't care who you are, you know, there's dozens of things that in this book that you will not have come across before. Right. right. Yeah. There's just, there's just lots of things. I had to look a few things up. So, and, you know, again, hopefully it's, um, you know, hopefully it's written in a, you know, fairly fun, fun manner, poke fun at, particularly at the University of Michigan. I live, I live in Michigan and I'm a Wisconsin fan, so I got to make fun of Michigan wherever I can. And so I do that a few times and poke fun at a couple other schools as well. That's great. I do, I, I, do have to say this time, I highly recommend the book. Um, you'll see the review will be coming out in a few weeks. And, uh, again, it's a, it's a must-read for both football fans and non-fans alike. Mm-hmm. And uh, where can we get the book again? Yeah, so uh, it's it's sold on Amazon. So if you okay. just look up uh, how football uh, became football or type in my name, Timothy P. Brown, uh, you know, you'll find it there. And then for those who want to get a feel for it without necessarily buying, you can go to my website, fieldsoffriendlystrife.com. And I've got a number of articles in there that are, uh, that are under a subject line of how football became football. But there's a whole b- bunch of little blog postings that are basically on, you know, football history topics. So go there and get a feel for it. And if you like the stuff, then go get the book. If you don't like it, then, you know, you haven't wasted any of your money. <laughs> Very good. I don't think it's a waste. Tim, I think it's a good, a good read. Tim, I thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll be in touch. Tim Brown, author of the new book, How Football Became Football, 150 Years of the Game's Evolution. I highly recommend it. All right, Joe, I'm going to hand off to hey. you. We're running out of time. We're going to go into our two-minute warning and wrap up. Yeah, Tim. Oh, I thought you had something to say. I was, I was going to say, well, oh, I, I, Rob says thank you for being on the show. Ahead, and go ahead. I say thank you for considering writing a Steve Larger book. Thank you. Thank you for being yeah. on the show. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I do want to say, I, I don't know if you remember these. Uh, the, on Saturday Night Live, they, they've done this thing where if you appear five times on Saturday Night Live, you get invited yes. as the host. You get, you get invited to yep. the special club. So I've got to write three more books. I've got to write three more books. I'm on it. <laughs> We've had you five timers, Tim. So you're in the running. You're doing good. Yeah. Well, you're up. You're up two. <laughs> hey, thank you. Next, it's, it's next book will be three, so it'll be all set. <laughs> nice. Thanks. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate Thanks for being on. My pleasure. Uh, Thanks, Joe. Guys. Joe, hand off to you. As we're all right. Well, that, that's fun. Almost. I, I remember you. I remember talking to him the first time. I had to go back and look at my notes. Uh, it's always good to make sure somebody has a sense of humor before you, you know, start dropping some jokes. Uh, good auctions coming up. Uh, looking forward to Leland's. It pops on July 19th, which I think is this this Sunday. It'll be good to see if we can get him back on as a guest to talk about uh, items coming up. It'll be good to get him a week prior just to drop a, drop a few uh, – you know, give us some hints of some things coming up. We should kick that around in the future, Bob. I hear you. I hear you. And um, he was he was uh, amazing the first time we had him on. Uh, oh, a couple could talk for hours. All right, wrapping up. We're down to a minute. A um, couple quick things again. New issue of GG will be out the end of July. Traditionally, the national issue, obviously no national this year, so it's going to be a regular issue. A lot of articles, including Joe's article on the 1988, and I'll just leave it like that, keep people in suspense. We're going to be back this week with another show on Thursday with a uh, special guest with uh, an incredible collection of uh, uh, an NFL team, and I'll leave that as it is. Joe, back to you, 20-second wrap-up real quick. Any final thoughts? Wow. I'm sure it's a page turner. My 1988 to be determined article in Grid Rights will be a page turner. You'll love it. Uh, some, some fun little quips in there that I always like to drop. So Bob, I'll tell you, I, 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 
That brought back a lot of memories for me. I did collect. I did collect that set, and um, and um, it, it, it was it was nice to read about again. It was a very interesting yeah. set, and to me, it's very overlooked. I run. Yeah. We're almost out of time. If you're not a subscriber, what's stopping you? Check us out, GridironGreatsMagazine.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.